Welcome to LSE, and welcome to this Philosophy at LSE public lecture entitled What is Rationality Anyway? The lecture is part of a series called Philosophy at LSE. It's organised jointly by the Forum for European Philosophy, by the LSE Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, and by the LSE Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Sciences. Uh, I'm Jonathan Birch. I'm an assistant professor in the philosophy department. I'm also a forum of the uh, a fellow of the Forum for European Philosophy. And I'm delighted to introduce tonight's speaker, who's Peter Dennis. He's an LSE fellow in the Department of Philosophy here at LSE, uh, and also a, a, a fellow of the Forum for European Philosophy. He's a specialist in epistemology and rationality, and I'm delighted that he's going to talk to us for about 50 minutes on this theme of what is rationality anyway. After the, after the talk, there'll be uh, a Q&A period to which you're all invited to contribute. And so I'll now hand over to Peter Dennis. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, I might move around a bit, so can everybody hear me at the back if I talk like this? Great. Um, well, first of all, thanks very much for coming. It's exciting and a little bit intimidating to see so many people here. Uh, and it's an important topic, so I wanted to kick off by saying a little bit about why I think this question is important, why in general it's worth asking what is rationality and why philosophers should be thinking about it. So why ask this question? Well, first of all, according to a long tradition in philosophy, rationality defines us as human beings. It's part of what makes us the kind of beings that we are. So Aristotle said that human, human beings are the animal possessing a rational principle, or rational animals. And this uh, definition of human life has been extremely influential. Um, Shall I move that up? Yep. Extremely influential in our Western tradition. So suppose that's true, that rationality is defining of human life. It's part of what makes us who we are. Then it seems worth investigating what rationality is. By investigating what rationality is, we could shed some light on who we are as human beings. And that seems, from a philosophical point of view, to be worth investigating. <coughs> but also, even wider than that, rationality is a normative standard which we hold ourselves to. We're always criticising one another for being irrational, telling one another we should be more rational. Um, we often um, unpick one another's arguments, finding counterexamples and, and objections. And implicitly there, we're holding one another to a particular standard, the standard of rationality. So it's important to have a good idea of what rationality is, um, particularly because someone else might come along with an alternative, perhaps mistaken conception of what rationality is, convince us of that, and then get us to believe all kinds of things about what rationality requires. So to guard against that, it's worth having a substantive account of what rationality is. Um, and thirdly, rationality is not just a normative standard, but it's extremely pervasive. In, e- pervasive. in every area of life, we hold ourselves to standards of rationality. So just by interacting with someone or standing up and giving a talk, um, you agree to take criticism and you agree to put forward reasons for the ideas that you're, that you're presenting. So the French philosopher Jacques Derrida said that as soon as I speak to the other, I submit myself to the law of giving reasons. So interacting with people implies um, submitting yourself to that law of giving reasons, being willing to give, give reasons for your view and defend your view or actions against criticism. So that's why I think this question is important. So now we're going to ask, what is rationality? 
Well, in recent times, this idea of rationality, the concept of rationality, I think has been brought into disrepute. If you say that you're interested in working on rationality, people think that you must be a rather cold and calculated sort of a person. Maybe you're not interested in uh, morality or emotions. Uh, you're rather more sort of calculating what's in your best interest. And I think this is due to a widespread conception of rationality, which I'm calling the economic conception of rationality. Rational, rational agents maximise their expected utility. They um, do what's in their best interest. Rationality is about promoting your self-interest at the extreme. Rationality is about being selfish. I'm going to give an example of someone who seems to have assumed this conception of rationality and use that as a foil <coughs> to give, give you some reasons why I think this can't be correct, this account of rationality. Garrett Hardin uh, was a famous ecologist um, and is well known across the social sciences for proposing an idea that he called the tragedy of the commons. So consider a case where you've got some common grazing land and you've got a number of farmers that are free to graze their cows or animals there. Um, the area is um, not fenced off. Anybody can go and graze their animals there. And provided there aren't too many people grazing, this is a profitable system. Um, but it's in someone's individual, narrow self-interest to graze as many cattle there as they can. One, adding one more, if a farmer adds one more cow, um, then they will have a, a large increase to their um, individual uh, return. But the overall result, if everybody does that, will be the general degradation of the commons. Um, and so this is what Hardin, well, Hardin comments on this, and also I should say that he wants to apply this not just to great things like grazing land, but he actually applies it to population. He thinks of people having children. He thinks that if people have too many children, the world will become overpopulated, and we've got to somehow rein this in. And other uh, social scientists and even philosophers have come later and said, well, this model can apply to climate change as well. You can imagine people not just grazing cattle, um, but polluting, making use of the Earth's ability to absorb carbon dioxide. Um, it's always going to be in my interest to pollute more because I get the whole of the benefit from polluting, whatever economic gain I get by producing. Um, but the costs of pollution are shared by everybody. So however bad things get, it's always going to be in my interest to pollute a little bit more. Um, so Hardin comments uh, like this. This is from his 1968 paper. He says, as a rational being, each herdsman seeks to maximise his own gain. Explicitly or implicitly, more or less consciously, he asks, what is the utility to me of adding one more animal to my herd? And what's striking for our purposes is that Hardin takes it to be <coughs> self-evident that this is what the herdsman will do as a rational being. He then concludes, uh, given that all these rational beings and many people are, are rational, they were going to do this. Ruin is the destination to which all men rush, each pursuing his best interest. Freedom in a commons brings ruin to all. And Hardin uses this to argue for private um, control of the commons. And the two general res traditional responses to this problem of the tragedy of the commons is either to ring-fence the commons, give every divide it up so everybody's got uh, private land, or to allow the state uh, to, to, to control things. 
But these are pretty substantive conclusions, and you'll notice that they all uh, depart from a pretty central and, I would argue, controversial assumption about rationality. It's only because we're rational beings and because rationality requires us to maximise our self-interest that this tragedy of the commons looks inevitable. And I think it's worth saying something else as well. Um, If we accepted Hardin's conclusion, we'll have to accept that this is the way we will inevitably act as rational beings. But also, given the fact that rationality uh, is a normative standard, as I said in the beginning, you'd also have to believe that this is really the way you should act. If this is the way that it's rational to act, by just stockpiling all these cows, even though the commons is just being completely uh, degraded, um, well, if it's rational for you to do that, then surely you should do that. Um, Rationality um, is an evaluative term. It's something that we're spo- it's an ideal we're supposed to aspire to. So can this uh, ideal of rationality be criticised? It's hard in right to say that rationality is just maximising your self-interest. Well, I think there are three objections to this view. Suppose Hardin is right and rationality is maximising your self-interest then we'd have to say that these herdsmen are paradigms of rationality. Um, Whereas it seems quite equally possible to say that they're paradigms of irrationality. There's something quite mad and crazed about these herdsmen that keep piling on more cattle to the commons, um, even though the commons is being completely uh, degraded. It seems just as possible to say that they're paradigms of irrationality. So that seems to be a count against Hardin's view. And going on from that, if we say that rationality is self-interest, then not only would it be rational to do as the herdsmen do, but in fact cooperating and limiting uh, yourself to a certain number of cattle would be irrational. Whereas that strikes us as quite a sensible and rational thing to do. And if cooperation is irrational, what about something like altruism? So suppose you uh, find someone's wallet and return it to them. Well, that's not really in your best self-interest. If you think you can get away with it without getting caught, uh, you should pocket the money without telling them. Are you irrational for returning their wallet? Well, take a more extreme example of somebody who saves a person from a burning building at cost of themselves or risk to themselves. Are they irrational for doing that? If we take Hardin's model uh, seriously, we'd have to accept that they are. So instead of hailing such people as heroes, we would have to criticise them as having some sort of cognitive defect. Well, I think it's only fair to consider a reply that Hardin might make or that we could make on Hardin's behalf. Hardin might say, I'm using this term rationality as a technical term. I don't mean to be using it in the way that um, we would ordinarily use it. And that seems to be quite legitimate. Generally, in academia, psychologists, for example, use terms like anxiety and depression to mean quite specific technical things. These definitions are not um, subject to their ordinary use. They're subject to expert agreement. So perhaps rationality um, is given a more technical definition, something more specific, like maximising your narrow self-interest. 
So the response is that we're making a mountain out of a molehill. We're getting carried away over nothing here. We're getting excited about rationality, leading to all these sorts of absurd conclusions, according to Hardin. But really, it's just a technical term. Well, if Hardin were to make this response, he would face a dilemma. Either he means what we ordinarily mean by rationality, or he means something quite specific, something more like self-interest. Well, suppose he means what we ordinarily mean. In that case, he's got to answer those objections that we just considered. So it's got to be that he means something else, something more technical. But in that case, his conclusion is just boring. It's only striking that ruin is the destination to, all men, to which all men rush if um, they rush that way because they are rational. If the conclusion is just um, that self-interested people will um, bring about common destruction, well, we might not be so surprised. It's only striking and surprising and interesting conclusion uh, if we say that it's rationality that compels us to act in this way. So the philosopher John Austin said that in philosophy there's the place where you say it, there's the bit where you say it, and the bit where you take it back. And this looks like a case of this. There's the bit where he says it, in being rational we will destroy the earth, and there's the bit where he takes it back, where he says, well, of course, by rationality, I don't mean rationality, I mean self-interest. Self-interested people will be self-interested. But that seems trivial and boring. So I think we can't uh, be overly impressed by this response that rationality is just being used as a technical term. And in fact, I think we should be very suspicious of it, given that rationality has these normative um, associations. It's a normative ideal, something that we aspire to. We should be very, very careful about accepting some other technical definition of it. And I want to consider an alternative view, which I think is an improvement on Hardin's view that rationality is self-interest. And this view says that to be rational is to act in a coherent way. It's to be coherent, it's to approach the world from a coherent point of view. So in the case of belief, that's going to mean not having inconsistent beliefs, making sure that you don't embrace any contradictions. You don't believe that Barack Obama is the President of the United States and simultaneously that he's not the President of the United States. You're at least consistent. And as applied to action, your actions are going to be reflective of your general beliefs, motivations and goals. So in a word, rational agents um, approach the world, the world from a coherent point of view um, and they get what they want in terms of their motivations and goals. Now that's an improvement on the self-interested the self-interest conception of rationality. Because, of course, someone's motivations and goals might not just be self-interested. I might have a genuine goal to bring about happiness in the world, in which case I go about helping other people. Um, and this view um, is more popular in philosophy. Well, the <coughs> problem for this view is that we can imagine coherent and yet irrational people. So, I want to introduce three characters. first character is the dogmatist. This is a person you can imagine with a kind of conspiracy theory, I suppose a 9-11 conspiracy theory, and uh, they simply avoid coming into contact with uh, any source of evidence that they think might undermine their <coughs> belief. And when they, unfortunately, come across evidence that undermines their belief, 
they somehow try to try to assimilate it. So if they run into you and you say, well, look, it's reported widely that these planes crashed into the buildings or whatever the details are that they, that they dispute, um, they say, ah, yes, 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 but that's because there's a worldwide conspiracy uh, in the media uh, to, to silence uh, the truth uh, about this. So they can readily assimilate any possible objection uh, to their own theory. Um, now, that person's coherent. They don't embrace any contradictions. In fact, it's precisely the problem that they're too coherent. They've got sort of their beliefs are so sort of enclosed in this microcosm that they're not willing to uh, approach any any other alternative point of view and, and see the, the world from from a more complex uh, way. Um, and so this hardly seems like a paradigm. Somebody who's who's rational. Um, the next character is the fanatic. Somebody that's motivated by a political ideology or a religious ideology. Um, and they're not able to uh, see other, um, other reasons apart from uh, what will serve the best interests of the party or what will promote the faith. Um, again, someone who's very, very fanatical, only motivated by a particular ideology, um, can be very, very coherent, but nonetheless approaches the world in a less than rational way, I should say. Third character is the psychopath, uh, and this character is unable to uh, act or react to a certain class of reasons, moral reasons. They're quite fine acting in their own self-interest, but where it comes to the interests of others, they can't really seem to see why that should motivate them or give them a reason to act. Now, all of these three characters fulfill this condition of coherence, and yet there seems something uh, less than rational about them. Um, again, though, I think it's worth considering a response uh, that could be made uh, on behalf of the coherence view. Um, maybe these people are just bad. They're not irrational. They have some failing, but their failing is a moral failing. It's not a failing of rationality. It's not a cognitive failing. So this is the old debate of whether Hitler was irrational or mad or whether he was just evil. Um, and there's something to this. Of course, the dogmatist and the fanatic and the psychopath, they all obey a certain remorseless logic. They're internally coherent, so at least they've got that facet, uh, which we do associate with rationality. But again, they're hardly paradigms of rationality, especially if we accept that um, traditional view that we started with, that rationality is somehow defining of human beings. It's what makes us human. Right? These seem somehow robotic in their uh, use and uh, in, their, in their use of in their use of rationality in their application of logical principles. They don't seem like a paradigm rational agent who's open to be responsive to reasons and to weigh evidence in an impartial, rational way. Um, and that leads on to this uh, following point, which is that. They don't really seem responsive to reasons. This person in the grip of the 9-11 conspiracy theory, it seems that any possible evidence that they might come across, they would easily be able to assimilate to their view. They're not an open-minded person. And isn't there something about rationality that requires us to be responsive to reasons? Again, the fanatic about to commit some terrible atrocity in the name of the party or in the name of the religion... Uh, doesn't seem to be responsive to reasons that they have. They've got every reason not to carry out this atrocity, and yet they go ahead anyway. 
So this leads us on to a third suggestion. Rationality, we could say, is just responding to what reasons you have. This seems like a plausible view. Um, so rational agents are agents that do whatever they've got most reason to do. Okay, now that um, avoids the objections um, that we considered to the previous two views. So consider the character of this hoarding, greedy herdsman uh, piling on cows to the, to the commons. They're not the paradigm rational agent if rationality is responding to reasons. They've got every reason to cooperate. They've got good reason um, to make sure that the commons isn't degraded. Only their reasons are not their private, self-interested reasons. They're just reasons that are, that, um, are given to them by, by the fact that the commons is a, is a, valuable, a valuable resource. Um, also, it allows us to avoid the uh, problems of the fanatic and the dogmatist and the, and the psychopath. All these people act in ways that they've got no reason to act, or they believe things that they've got no reason to believe. They believe and act against what they've got most reason. Um, but there's a disadvantage to this view, of course, just to say that rationality is responding to reasons. It doesn't seem to solve the problem at all. We started with a question about rationality, and now we've just got the same question about reasons. If it was important to ask what rationality is, it's going to be equally important to ask what is a reason. So if rationality is just responding to reasons, we need to be able to say what it is that rationality requires us to respond to. What are reasons? Well, there are two popular views in philosophy. In fact, almost all philosophers who approach this question fall into one of these two camps. You're either an internalist in philosophy or you're an externalist. Internalists hold that reasons are essentially motivations. You've got reason to do whatever you can be motivated to do. Externalists, on the other hand, say that reasons are aspects, or aspects of the external world or perhaps facts about the external world. Now, I want to illustrate this uh, distinction by showing you a heartwarming video. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone in, in uh, having someone on my Facebook feed who posts these, these videos. Um, okay, where do we get to? Internalism and externalism. Okay, so there are two competing accounts uh, that we might give of, of what, what's going on here. We want to give it in these sort of perhaps dry philosophical terms of what, what reasons the motorcyclist has. So the motorcyclist, as the externalist would see it, is driving along the road and suddenly sees this man that's struggling to, uh, to cross the road um, and sees a reason in the external world. It's the man himself and his, his need to be helped that gives the motorcyclist a reason to help. And what the motorcyclist does is simply respond to the reason, perceives that they have this reason in the external world, responds to the reason by helping the man across the road. The internalist, on the other hand, uh, would describe the situation differently. They would say that the motorcyclist is driving along, um, certainly sees this man needing to cross the road, but it's only because they're the kind of person that's motivated by kindness and generosity uh, and a sense of the public good um, that gives them a reason to help the person across the road. So the internalists and externalists disagree about whether this motorcyclist would have a reason to act were he not motivated 
by things like kindness and generosity. As the externalist sees it, whether or not the motorcyclist is motivated by those things, they still have a reason. In fact, all of the other people who just drove by (coughs) still have that reason, that moral reason, uh, the man needing to get across the other side of the road. The internalist would say, no, wait, things are a bit more complicated. We need to answer some questions about what those other drivers' motivations are in order to decide whether they have a reason to help. So that gives us something to get going. We wanted to know what rationality was, and we've, got, we've arrived at this account which looks plausible, which is rationality is responding to reasons. We wanted to say, well, what are our reasons? That doesn't really help very much. Now we've got two philosophical accounts on the table which promise to tell us what our reasons are. Now, how to choose between these two accounts? I'm going to be quite quick here, but... It seems to me that internalism is really rather similar to the logical coherence view. Right? There's a way of spelling out both views in which case, in, uh, on which they, they're really the same, the same idea, that what a rational agent does is act in a coherent way, um, act on the basis of, of their motivation, um, and the rational agent is the person that gets what they want. Um, If that's what internalism is, then it's going to be vulnerable to the kinds of considerations we raised against the uh, logical coherence view. Psychopath, the fanatic, um, uh, and the dogmatist. Um, So suppose we eliminate internalism. We might go for externalism. After all, it's an attractive theory, especially when we're dealing with the moral case. It seems plausible that actually everybody driving past had a reason to help. And what distinguishes the motorcyclist from the other motorists is that they acted on that reason. Right? It seems, especially when we extreme, consider extreme moral cases, it seems implausible to think that if you're not motivated by generosity and kindness or doing the right thing or just decency in general, then you, know, you don't have a reason to help and you're perfectly uh, rationally okay to, to drive on by. Um, So externalism looks like a good view. So is externalism the solution? Well, the trouble is that externalism faces a deep and intractable problem. And I'm calling this the problem of normativity. Externalism holds that reasons are facts about the world or aspects of the external world. But reasons are something normative. That's to say, reasons um, tell you what it's correct for you to do or what you should do. Um, Whereas facts about the world, it seems hard how the world could contain any facts about what you should do or what you ought to do, especially if you limit the world to the natural world. We're not dealing with God or the supernatural world. We're just dealing with what we can see and touch, the sorts of things that the sciences investigate. Now, how can it be that the sciences, say biology or chemistry or physics, could do some experiment and suddenly unearth some normative facts about the world. Certainly they can tell us about what the world is like, what is the case, but it doesn't seem that they can tell us about what should be the case or how we ought to act. So it seems that the external world uh, contains all sorts of facts. Facts like, this man needs help. Or, if I don't help, he's going to have trouble reaching the other side. And if I do, then he would be helped. Uh, if I help, he'll be happy. If I'm lucky, he'll be grateful. These are all facts about the world. 
But none of these things are normative facts. None of these are facts about what I should do. And so, once, we, once all of the facts are in, it seems difficult to derive a normative fact, like I should help, or I ought to help. And this uh, problem uh, comes, goes at least as far back as David Hume, uh, who said you can't get an ought from an is. You can't list facts about the world, what is the case, and then suddenly can, uh, conclude um, something normative, what should be the case. Yeah, we can imagine someone who's perfectly rational, who certainly realises all of these non-normative facts about the world, but why should they be logically compelled to infer this normative fact? I should help, right? Why, sh- why shouldn't they reach some completely different conclusion? Now, the trouble is, ironically for Hume, that internalism is vulnerable to exactly the same problem. Hume used this uh, problem of normativity to motivate something like an internalist theory. Hume said the only way uh, an external fact can give you a reason is if you're motivated to act according to that external fact. So the man in the road can't give you a reason unless you're motivated to to help old men in the road. Um, But it seems like we can't get um, normativity from motivations either. Motivations or facts about motivations are just descriptive facts. They're not normative facts. So suppose we say that I'm motivated by kindness, generosity, um, and helping others. And you're riding along in your motorbike, you say, oh, look, an opportunity for displaying kindness and generosity and and helping others. Does it follow that I've got a reason to help this person? It seems to me that it only follows that I'm motivated to help the person. But I might be motivated to do all kinds of things that I shouldn't really do or that I've got no reason to do. Right? I might have a deep motivation to high-five everybody in the front row. But it doesn't follow that I should high-five everybody in the front row. It would be weird to do that. In fact, it feels weird just talking about it. So um, just for you, because you've got some motivations to do something, as we all know, it doesn't follow that you should do those things or that you've got most reason to do those things. So the problem of normativity affects internalism as well as externalism. Right? We can't get a conclusion like, I should help, from facts about the way we're motivated. So what's the diagnosis? Diagnosis is that neither internalism or externalism can do anything about normativity. They can't accommodate this idea of normativity. And if we accept that reasons are normative, they can't provide a basis for rationality. They can't help us out of our fix when we embrace this responding to reasons view. They can't give that view some substance um, because reasons are normative. And I want to offer the following suggestion, and this is really the message of the talk. It takes me to, to what I really, uh, the, the true account of rationality, if I can say, the account of rationality that I, that I want to recommend. Um, My diagnosis is that the reason they can't accommodate normativity is because they're individualistic theories. If we think back to that picture of the motorcyclist riding along the road and the old man, (coughs) where are other people in this picture? Both the internalist and the externalist assume that responding to reasons is like an isolated subject coming across some part of the world that's external to them. But other people don't figure. Um, 
And I want to suggest that the only way we can get normativity uh, into our account is, in fact, um, by thinking of rationality as a social practice. Uh, normativity is unimaginable without social practices. So you should be thinking, why does it help to introduce social factors? It's bizarre that uh, normativity can arise from non-normative states of the world or states of motivations. Um, how's throwing in other people really going to help us? We'll start by thinking about the first original context where we encounter normativity as children for the first time. Contexts like these ones, right? being taught things, teaching and learning, being criticised, chastised, praised and blamed, um, being held to account, being brought, brought into the headmaster's study and asked to give an account of our actions and explain ourselves. We really encounter normativity in a big way. Um, being accused or being guided. For example, uh, think about a child learning to play the piano. They're encountering normativity. For example, the difference between the wrong note and the right note. Uh, this is a normative <coughs> distinction. Now, why is it that when we're thinking of uh, our everyday experience within these social practices, um, that we have no trouble getting an idea of normativity off the ground. Normativity seems like the most obvious thing in the world. We're learning to play the piano and it's the wrong note. It seems self-evident to us. We don't go into these philosophical uh, ruminations about uh, how we can get something normative from something non-normative. Um, we'll consider the, the internalist and the externalist looking at this child playing the piano. The internalist will say, well, it's the wrong note, or the child's not got a reason not to play that note, um, if the child's motivated to play that note. And the externalist was going to say, uh, rather quaintly, no, no, there's something about the piano itself, there's something in the note itself that makes that the wrong note to play. And both of these accounts, as we've seen, seem somehow mystical. How can normativity get going at all? Um, whereas... When we're engaged in the act of playing the piano, normativity seems like the most obvious thing in the world. Now, that's just the, the datum. We haven't said why that should be so. So as yet, we don't have any support for this social theory of rationality. So why is it, then, that normativity seems straightforward when we're thinking about these sorts of social practices, but when we isolate ourselves from other people in social practice, normativity seems something mystical and confusing? Well, I want to suggest that in all of these social practices, normative standards or standards of correctness are public. Learning to play the piano, the child's not just learning to play a series of notes. The child's being inculcated into a community of musicians. Right? It's a community that exists not just synchronically at this time, but it's a community that goes backwards in time throughout the whole tradition. Child's being inculcated into a community with shared standards of wrong notes, right notes, uh, shared standards of musicality. Um, equally, being brought into the headmaster's study, you're being held to publicly available standards. Um, and that's what enables us to get normativity off the ground. To see this, compare an idea of Perhaps I just decide to learn to sing. I don't decide to take a teacher. Um, in fact, I'm not going to get a teacher self uh, to sing book. In fact, all of that's just social control, and, and, and I want to do things my way. I want to learn to sing by my own standards. I don't want to submit my individual creativity to publicly available standards. I want to sing my way. And suppose one day I'm, I'm there singing, probably in the shower, 
um, and I think, oh, that's wrong. I've, I've sung a wrong note. It's too high or it's, or it's too low. And I correct myself. Well, what sense can it really make to say that I correct myself there? What sense does it make to say that I was singing the wrong note and now suddenly I'm singing the right note? Why couldn't we describe the situation the other way around? I was singing the right note and now I've just made an error. Now I've got it wrong. I'm singing the wrong note. In other words, what difference can we, uh, or how can we spell out the difference in just that very individual, isolated case between being right on the one hand and seeming right. The right note is just going to be whatever it seems like the right note to me at the time to sing. And this, I take it, is one of the messages of Wittgenstein's private language argument, that if you're trying to hold yourself to standards of correctness that are not publicly available, there can be no difference between meeting the standards um, and simply changing your mind, making up other rules, and also no difference between being right, meeting the standards, and just believing that you meet the standards. And more apposite to our purposes, consider now a different example, not singing in the shower, but somebody who's trying to give an account of themselves, give an account of justify their actions. So take an extreme case, uh, going back to the example of the fanatic, like Anders Breivik, who wrote 1,500 pages or more, justifying uh, the shooting of uh, students in, in Norway. Now, he's gone through this process of giving an account of himself, of justifying himself, but the, the standards that he's willing to assess his actions by are not public standards. He wasn't able to convince a court of his peers. These aren't standards that um, could be available um, to anybody else in that community. These were his own private standards. And so it's no good for a character like that, obviously an extreme case, to say, oh, well, I'm justified in my own head. I'm justified to myself. If normativity entails and, and um, implies social life, then this idea of being justified to yourself is no good. You might as well whistle it to yourself. He's not actually engaged in a genuine process of justification by writing these pages of reasons that seem appropriate in his own mind. Again, just like me singing in the shower, there can be no difference between being justified and believing that you're justified. Being right and seeming right. Seeming, and it's seeming to you that you're right. So I hope I've said a little bit about how if we include social practices in our account of rationality, or in fact in any account of a normative practice, um, then we're able to get some normativity in a way that <coughs> internalist and externalist theories are unable to do. And this leads to the following tentative view of rationality. Social account of rationality. According to this social account, which I'm recommending... Rationality is the social practice of accounting for our beliefs and actions to other people, and importantly, doing so according to publicly available standards, accounting for ourselves in a way that other people can, at least in principle, be brought to accept. Right? That's what the fanatic can't do. It's also what um, the, uh, the conspiracy theorist, the dogmatist, is unable to do. He's not able to reply to a challenge from an interlocutor. For example, the challenge that, look, this is all over the media, we've got the internet. Um, 
he's not able to reply to that challenge in a way that the interlocutor could, in principle, accept, because the reply to the challenge is a kind of private reply. It's a sort of reply that's only acceptable to a person already in the grip of this conspiracy theory. But that's precisely the theory that this person is supposed to be giving a reason for. Um, so that's this social account. So according to this account, reasons are publicly, must be publicly available. They're publicly um, available principles that you can give to other people um, in order to bring them, ideally, to accept your view, or at least to, to be able to understand your view. Now, I think this account avoids all of the objections that I've considered so far. It avoids the objection that uh, Hardin's self-interest account is vulnerable to, which is that this greedy herdsman is somehow this paragon of uh, rationality. Um, suppose you are this greedy herdsman, you're piling on these more, more and more animals. Now, can you give a publicly acceptable defence of your actions? That's to say, a defence that would be acceptable to your fellow herdsman. It seems that the only reason you've got to pile on more and more animals is that it serves your private interest to do so. You can't say that this is somehow beneficial to the community. Um, in fact, when you look at it from a publicly available point of view, you've got every reason not to do that. And so the community would rightly say, you're unjustified in piling on uh, another animal. Well, what about the dogmatist, the fanatic, or the psychopath? I think I've said enough about those cases that these are people, even though they obey a kind of internal logic, they're not able to justify their actions or beliefs to a wider community. And that's to say that they don't, um, their beliefs don't measure up to standards of correctness that are publicly available or publicly acceptable. At best, they measure up to their own private standards of correctness. And I've suggested that the idea of a completely private standard of correctness is actually an incoherent idea. It's not um, a standard of correctness that could be a genuine standard because it couldn't have any genuine normativity. Normativity only comes about when we've got a social practice. Okay, I'm going to finish up soon, but it would be only fair to consider an objection against my account. It would be easy to argue for a, for a view in philosophy by considering objections to all the others and then just sort of leaving off, and hopefully we'll have some more objections in the Q&A, or not hopefully for me. Um, I think there's one objection which it is important to discuss uh, against this social theory. Sounds alright, but someone's going to be thinking, um, isn't it just a bit sort of arbitrary to say the standards of rationality are just social, publicly available? Isn't rationality somehow got a bit more bite to that than just what, so what is socially acceptable? Um, and this objection can be expressed um, in terms of uh, Euthyphro dilemma, going back to Plato. Um, you could ask me, well, is what is rational, rational, because society says it is? Or does society say certain things are rational because they are, in fact, rational? Right? Is what is rational, rational, because society says it is? Does it get to be that way, just out of result of society's say-so? Or does society say it's rational because it is, in fact, rational, right? See the idea. Um, well, suppose we go for the first horn of, of the dilemma. Society gets to say what's rational, gets to decide what's rational. What's rational is rational out of the, because of the fact that society says it's rational. 
Well, it seems that the standards of rationality is arbitrary and relative. <coughs> or we go for the other horn of the dilemma, and we say what appears to be more sensible to say that society is rational if and only if, uh, sorry, society should say something is rational only because it is in fact rational. Well, then we've got to accept that the standards of rationality can't be dependent on society or social practices at all. They must be something else. In which case, we're all the way back to square one with this question, what is rationality? We've got three good reasons why we need an answer to this question and no further forward. Well, obviously, the social account of rationality is going to have to take that first horn of the dilemma, right? If we say that society says something is rational because it is rational, then we're going to have to admit that there are some independent standards uh, of rationality, and that's tantamount to giving up the theory. Okay, so I'm going to defend this first horn of the dilemma. And the way I'm going to do it is by replying to that accusation that the theory is somehow arbitrary uh, or relative. And I'm going to unpack three different ways of things, something, uh, things somebody might mean by saying that it's arbitrary and relative. The first one I'm going to argue we should dismiss. And the second two... I'm going to argue are genuine considerations, uh, but the social uh, theory of rationality can be exonerated against those charges. So the first accusation, what an objector might have in mind, is that this social theory makes the standards of rationality dependent on human interests, purposes, and goals. It seems to kind of dumb down the standards of rationality to something that is just dependent on human beings. Um, so this comes from a, a, a perspective in philosophy which has a long history, going back at least to Plato. Plato thought that rationality was something, in a way, outside of human life. Human, ordinary human activity takes place in the cave, with the realm of appearances, but rationality is really out there in the world of forms. It's something transcendent, and indeed the rational part of human nature is really the transcendent part. It doesn't, it's the part that doesn't belong to the hurly-burly of human activity. Um, and even Aristotle, who rejected Plato's idea of the world of forms, um, when he's pressed on, on the soul, he thinks, well, you know, the soul dies with the body, but that rational part of the soul, that intellect, well, that's got to be eternal. That's got to live forever, right? Um, now... And it's there in our religious tradition too. St. John's Gospel, in the beginning, was the Word, the Logos, the rational principle. And the Word, the Logos, was made flesh. Rationality is something trans that transcends human beings. And to the extent that we're rational, um, we somehow latch onto this transcendent uh, law of rationality. Uh, but rationality can't be defined in terms of actual human interests. <laughs> Now, although this thought has got a long history and uh, is rather tempting at times, I think we should resist it. So what Nietzsche meant when he said that God is dead wasn't only that we stopped going to church. It was that we've, got to, we, we've stopped uh, being persuaded by the idea that the standards of human life are somehow external to human beings, that we've got to take responsibility for the standards by which we live our lives. Um, and if you're not a Nietzschean, then consider the following argument. Um, suppose oh, the, idea, the idea that there are standards of rationality that are somehow independent of human interests is actually the essence of fanaticism. 
It's the idea that there are some things can count as reasons. There are some reasons which are in principle beyond human scrutiny. They don't need to be justified in terms of human interests. And in fact, they can sanction acts that are fundamentally uh, antithetical to those interests. It's only if we insist on uh, what, I'm, what I would call a sort of humanistic conception of rationality that we resist the idea that rationality can somehow um, compel us to go against completely human interests uh, and human purposes and goals. So let's say that one is a kind of moderate humanism. Um, I think we should stick by that. So if that's what's meant by the charge of arbitrariness, and relativity, then the social theory is guilty as charged. But I think there's other more compelling things that someone might mean when they say, look, it can't just, what's rational can't just be decided by social standards. Uh, look, if that were the case, then the rational action <coughs> would just be whatever the majority of people believes it is. And the rational belief would just be whatever the majority believes it's rational to believe. And that can't be right. Um, well, in answer to this, I would consider something like um, the uh, early days of the gay rights movement. So in the early days, uh, people that were advocating uh, for, for gay rights were very much in the minority. Most people who discussed this issue um, weren't persuaded by their arguments. That's to say, in the beginning, this minority weren't able to convince their peers. So it seems that almost that they're on a par um, with somebody who's just got their own sort of private internal reasons and isn't able to convince anybody else. Now, it's, so it can seem that the social theory of rationality would say, well, it was rational to be against gay rights then because that was the social view, but now it's rational to, to be pro-gay rights because now this is more socially acceptable. Um, well, I don't think that that is the consequence if you look at what happened in, in terms of thinking about now, in the latest episode of this uh, battle for, for gay rights and the debate around gay marriage, those old arguments which were wheeled out and seemed plausible at the time really seemed empty and hollow to a lot of people. Arguments about naturalness of sexuality and, and so on and so on. Um, you know, these were widely parodied, and although they, they, um, they gained some adherence, they weren't generally persuaded. And I think that what that shows is that even when the movement was a minority, people um, arguing for uh, gay rights, the arguments were based on principles that the majority did in fact accept, these deep rational principles. Um, they accepted, for example, values of equality, um, and it was those very, very same values that were being brought to bear to argue uh, for gay rights. So it's not true that the rational action will be whatever the majority thinks is rational. Rather, we've got to, we've got to be a bit more subtle than that, and we've got to think that um, it's possible to even be in a minority but make a case for something rationally, but you make that case according to principles that <coughs> fundamentally are widely shared, and I think that was what was revealed um, in the fate of that gay rights movement. Um, it didn't die a death like other... Uh, movements actually it was widely acknowledged that okay yeah that is actually the rational uh, way to proceed um, finally though I'd just like to consider an objection that goes deeper than that which is that okay while it might be true that um, 
this social theory isn't committed to thinking that whatever society thinks is rational is rational. Nonetheless, society dictates the kind of rules of the game. It dictates the rules of the principle. Uh, it dictates the principles of rational argument, and that seems kind of arbitrary uh, and relative. So let's consider a different case. Consider the case of Galileo uh, and his arguments with the Catholic Church uh, about whether the sun goes round the earth or the earth goes round the sun. Seems, or according to one analysis of what's going on here, it seems that both the Catholic Church and Galileo are operating according to very different standards of rationality. According to the Church, what constitutes good evidence, a good argument, was an appeal, what constituted a good evidence, good argument, was an appeal to Scripture, an appeal to authority. Um, looking in the Bible or looking in another sacred text or in the tradition. What counted as a good argument or good evidence for Galileo was observations through a telescope and experimentation. And this wasn't just a case of the church sort of digging its heels in um, or being obtuse. Um, it was genuinely thought that um, observation from a telescope was somehow too far removed from sort of genuine observation to really uh, count as, as rational rational evidence. So that seems like a kind of, seems that this social view is committed to a kind of relativism, right? What's rational for Galileo is different to what's rational for the church, and, and that will seem objectionable to many people, in particular many philosophers. Well, there's part of this objection which I want to take on board. In fact, I think it's part of the objection here in one. Um, certainly the social theory of rationality is committed to saying that rationality is, um, must be assessed according to human interests, purposes and goals. But it's precisely because of that that we can understand why it was that Galileo's conception of rationality won out. What was the human interest or goal um, that both standards of rationality uh, were um, arguing they could serve? Well, presumably the human interest of finding out about the world, the human interest in inquiry. Um, and it turns out there's very limited amount of things you can find out, particularly about astronomy, from consulting a sacred text. Sure, you can make one or two inferences from a couple of uh, verses of scripture, but it's nothing like the resources that observation through a telescope uh, gives you. So there is uh, an impartial, if you like, objective way to um, distinguish different types of rationality. We can say that Galileo's idea of good evidence was in fact superior to uh, the Catholic Church's conception at the time. But it's only because Galileo's conception of evidence better serves that human interest of inquiry, and that can be demonstrated. Okay, in conclusion then, I considered... At least two conceptions of rationality, the first of which I think seems I think that's quite a popular <coughs> conception of rationality. And it gives rationality a bad name. That rationality is just about being cold and calculated and getting what's best for you. Um, and the logical coherence account, I argued that, that wasn't sufficient either. Um, the responding to reasons account seems right to me, it seems plausible but only because it's completely empty. It doesn't tell you what a reason is. Sure, we can all agree that rationality is responding to reasons, but we need to fill that in. 
Once we do try to fill in the details, at least with the uh, resources that are widely available in philosophy, um, we can't seem to do that because, in fact, we can't accommodate normativity. Neither internalism nor externalism can do that. We can accommodate normativity by thinking of rationality as a social practice, and I've explained how this social account of rationality um, is able to uh, reply to some of the objections uh, that the other views uh, face. And according to this view of rationality, the mark of rationality is not selfishness or logical coherence, but a willingness to talk, which seems like a good place to take questions. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks very much, Peter, for a very interesting and engaging lecture. Uh, we'll now have a Q&A period um, in which I think there is a roving microphone to be passed around to whoever is currently asking a question. Um, so let's start, let's start at the back, if we can get the microphone up to the back then, and then, then come down to the second row. Uh, Hello, Peter. Thank you. Uh, an excellent talk. Um, I'm going to start with essentially something of a nitpick, um, and it's regarding your account of Wittgenstein and the private language argument, because I think it's a, it's a telling um, elision, I, I guess you'd say. Um, so you turn around and you, you take the, the social constructivist uh, interpretation of the private language argument. And so I'm just going to expand on what the private language argument does and just to show where something seems to have gone missing. So what's good and important about the private language argument is Wittgenstein approaches this, this particular kind of empiricism where you have these, imp these impressions and you go and you, you attach labels onto these impressions. And then the, the suggestion that that... Well, his argument is roughly that that's not enough to give the, the, the kind of uh, the account you need for a normativity to, to give you a language. Now, we then go on to the idea that the only thing that gives you the, the, the kind of pushback to, to, the, to give you that normativity is a kind of social uh, uh, account. But what's left out is the idea that, well, you could also just be held accountable by the world. So it's not turned around and said that, you know, for instance, I could, uh, the rock in front of me could just uh, yell back at me, no, no, I really am a rock. Okay? We don't normally think of it as saying those sorts of things, but it's a, it's a plausible alternative, or it's a, pl a plausible alternative route for that kind of normativity. The world can just say to me that it, it is a certain way. So what it's tracking is, I'm going to suggest, uh, or that your account, the social account, is right in the round, um, but it, it's, it's a smaller part of a broader argument, which is that you're looking for a kind of causal account where you're saying that the world has to, has to sort of impact upon me and my beliefs. Now, one of the ways it does that is socially, but it could also, just by being the world, have that sort of impact on me. Right. <clears throat> Thanks very much. So, to perhaps interpretations of what you said there. One is that there's this kind of community view reading of the private language argument, which perhaps I'm, I'm exploiting. And, and perhaps the objection is, well, look, Wittgenstein's not doing that. He's, it's the wrong reading of the private language argument. If that's, if that's the worry, I suppose I would say, well, that's okay. Um, that's, that's what I'm doing, and then Wittgenstein just happens to be doing something else. Um, so my, um, I would be concerned to kind of cite Wittgenstein as inspiration, but if that's not what he's doing, then, then fine. Another interpretation of what, you, what you're saying is that 
actually this this private language argument is is, is kind of wrong because um, it um, doesn't allow for the possibility of as you say the, the world uh, being accountable to the world itself without any social sort of sort of factors um, in which case it's, it's not it's not okay just to fall back on Wittgenstein and say oh, well that's what the guy says right to, to say something um, I suppose I would want to press you a little bit more about what it is for for the for the rock to you know this rather metaphorical way the rock sort of cries out and says look you know um, um, I'm a rock um, suppose you're in the desert and you're looking for rocks and you're on your own in this case in this in this situation of a sort of private linguist um, well what determines what will you what makes it the case that you will count something as a rock or not. It seems that actually that's going to be, uh, there's going to be no difference between thinking something is a rock and, or thinking you're obeying the rule that you're obeying and in fact obeying the rule. Um, and so even though you might stub your toe on that rock, the rock doesn't somehow compel you to say, oh yeah, that's a rock that I stub my toe on. And I suppose that would be the sort of Wittgensteinian idea that rules are something that can't be followed <coughs> completely in isolation. That rules in, in involve a criteria of correctness, and that's not the sort of thing that you can get going in a completely private context. So uh, the, the simple reply is, well, when I stubbed my toe... Sorry, we can't really have follow-ups because of the, uh, the nature of the roving mic and the, the <laughs> finite uh, time we have. Uh, then there's a question on the second row here. Thank you. I was trying to arrive at a, at a definition um, because we, we didn't see a QED definition to start with of rationality. And after listening to you, I, I, was, I, I came to the conclusion that rationality is the willingness to enter into dialogue and change one's perspective based on the presentation of empirical data. Um, the trouble is that based on some recently published books in the past, say, two years, both here in America, uh, one being, say, Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Righteous Mind. We now know, and these books have been based on a lot of research, that within the public realm, um, in the political realm, even if people um, admit, well, or claim to be act, acting rationally, they're not. It's based on emotion. So in that light, um, and going back to the, mo the, the, the motorists and the motorcyclists, would you agree that the motorists have as many, had, have as many rational um, reasons not to stop as the motorcyclists, uh, strictly on an objective, rational basis? For instance, the, the question of moral hazard. I mean, if, if that man, if that's the hundredth time he's walked across the motorway, well, he's going to continue to do it, isn't he? Right, so I think I would... So the question of whether the motorcyclist has reason to stop, I would want to defer that question to another question, which is, is the motorist able to justify his stopping or not stopping in a publicly <coughs> acceptable way? So we might have a different view. I mean, I thought it was a nice thing for him to stop and sort of generate a good thing. But someone might say, well, actually, like, yeah, if he does that, this guy's going to cause a real nuisance for the city. So actually, he's got most reason to, to, to drive on. 
in that case, then I, I need another example. Um, but suppose that it's, you know, suppose we get the sort of the normative ethics sort of side of it, you know, that, yeah, um, he's got this reason to stop, although obviously other reasons in the background. And um, what explains that? That's the question I'm interested in. An internist will say what explains it is that he's motivated. He's just a sort of a nice charitable guy and then he's motivated to stop, so he's got a reason to do it. An externalist will say, um, no, it's the, the man's suffering that makes this, again, like, almost like the rock, makes this demand on him. Um, whereas I think that metaphor of makes this demand, the only way to really spell that out is in a dialectical way. It's somebody, it's another participant in a dialectical process who might make that demand at a later time and say, look, you didn't stop for that man. Like, you know, how can you, um, haven't you got a reply to this objection that you know maybe he's dead and you just wanted to go along your, your, your way? Um, it seems that his reasons are going to outweigh your reasons from a publicly available standpoint, if you go along with the example. Okay, the next question was on the front row here. Thank you. Um, I was just slightly perturbed by your glibly saying socially this is sort of a social thing that uh, that the herdsmen uh, all know that uh, it would be a bad thing if you simply add cattle, but they don't. Uh, that they would all agree that it was a bad thing. They might not. Um, and and that leads me to the question: Well, who's the jury in this in this scheme? And then that sort of led me to thinking about uh, Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions. Actually, with your with your with your example of whether the earth goes around the sun and all that business is dealt with extensively there. So, um, and so the question is, what paradigm does this jury hold and how did it get to that paradigm become fundamentally important questions in, in, in the question of, well, is something rational or is it not? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I suppose the way that the dialectic and the talk is supposed to go is that... <coughs> Hardin is the sort of villain, the kind of the, the, the foil, if you like. Um, so in attacking him, um, I'm borrowing one of Hardin's assumption that, assumptions that degradation of the commons would be a bad thing. Um, so in a sense, I kind of get that assumption for free. It counts against Hardin. He's got to grant that because it's his own assumption. So it's a tragedy of the commons. It's something bad. Um, so that's how it works, sort of die. That's what entitles me to that dialectically. Um, but yeah, it's an important question whether rationality just in general can decide um, on whether degradation of the commons is a good or a bad thing. Um, again, I'd want to defer to that further question of whether good objections could be brought to, say, a policy of, of restricting uh, grazing on the commons um, that could be brought not just from someone's private interest in um, maximising their profit, but from a publicly available standpoint of what's better for everybody. Um, so if someone were able to, and the case is under-described, we have to you know, wait and see what, what that reason would look like, but if someone were to give a reason to say, well, actually, from a publicly available standpoint, it's, it's not a bad thing that this commons is degraded, um, then I think that sort of reason would have to be heard. That's a weasel. The publicly available part is, is where the weasel is hiding. Okay, we have, um, we have a bit of a queue developing with questions, so please don't be too perturbed if it takes a while to get to you. But the next one is the, the woman in the sixth row, I think, who... 
and up for a while just close to the, the far side. Uh, you, yeah. Okay, sorry, I, have, I haven't been a student for ages and I was never a philosophy student, so a bit stuck. Um, it seemed to me a kind of common theme that seems to come out is people pin rationality with just method, scientific method. Is it, does it work for me? Does it seem to have good outcomes? And then does it seem to have good outcomes for other people? And I think that might also be the transcendent quality of it. So, for example, some people try something, it seems to work. They say it's rational to do it because it seems to provide good outcomes and other people independently also come to that same view because it works for them. So is rationality then anything more than method? And, I mean, if it is just method, then it kind of does fit with your... It's, it sort of fits with all of those things, I would think, because, in a way, it's rational to then believe everything. Everything is a relative decision. Everything is a socially constructed decision. Um, so is there anything wrong with just going back to a sort of definition of rationality as method? Can you just say a little bit what, what you mean by method? Just... Well, I'm, in my head, I'm confusing it with, or I'm putting, pinning it with sort of scientific method. It tests, it works, it seems to have an outcome I like. And right. yes, then you predetermine an outcome and you might get to a sort of chicken and question, how did you get to that outcome? Okay. But is, I mean, is there anything wrong with pinning rationality back to a kind of method? So there was a philosopher called Paul Feyerabend who wrote a book called Against Method. And the whole thesis of the book was that various philosophers of science try to explain what the scientific method is. Um, is it uh, proceeding through induction? Is it uh, conjectures and refutations? Uh, is, it, is it something else? Is it deductive logic? Um, Feyerabend's view that there's no method. is as you, as you say, whatever works. Uh, and I'd be willing to go along with something like that too, in general, for rationality. I'd be wary of saying rationality is following um, particular precepts and we've got to do something, something rather sort of smacks of scholasticism to say that rationality is always following a particular process. In fact, part of the thrust of my argument at the end was to say that all rational processes need to be assessed in terms of human interests and goals. So if our human interest or goal is getting to the truth, then we ought to follow whatever methods of uh, analysis um, get us there. So take, for example, we can, we can find things out about methods that work and methods that don't. So take, for example, the discovery of the placebo effect. Um, suddenly realise that in a clinical trial, if you're giving someone a medicine, it, they might get better not because the medicine's doing the work, but just because of the placebo effect. And so as a result of that, uh, at least many people said, we've got to have placebo-controlled trials. And that seems like an advancement in, in rationality. But it's only an advancement because it helps us get to the truth. There's nothing particularly valuable in and of itself of doing a placebo trial or following a deductive method or obeying modus tollens or uh, uh, doing experiments. I'd say those things are only valuable and have to be justified uh, with respect to fundamental human interests. I think the man directly behind in the, in the seventh row is next. Hi, thanks. Um, I was generally in agreement with the, the conclusion you came to, but I felt that in rejecting internalism, it was a little bit too quick. And I was wondering why it's not okay for the internalist to just say, well, the reason that you don't go and high-five everyone, that you don't think that's a good idea, is that you have competing motivations. Sure. And, so, and, and so perhaps it's an illusion that you think that there's some external reason why you don't have to do that. 
but maybe it's just that your <coughs> internal motivations are such that their overwhelming motivation is to carry on with your talk. Right, okay, great. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So, so you know, I might have this fleeting motivation to high-five these people, but, you know, really I'm worried about my career and this is more important to me and <laughs> don't want to do that. So underlying motivations sort of not to do that. Um, and that's really what wins out. I think that's right, that that's what motivates me. Um, you know, I promise I'm motivated in that way. Um, but um, trouble is, that can't give me a reason not to do it. It just follows that I'm motivated not to do it. Um, so take the extreme example of, of the fanatic or that's, that's motivated to act in a particular way. There it's not a fleeting motivation. These are really deep-seated part of the person's moral psychology. They're really motivated to act in that way. It doesn't follow to me that they've got a reason to act in that way at all. So in a way, the sort of stock-in-trade counterexamples to internalism, or what about this really bad person that's got all these you know, coherent but warped motivations, surely they do what they've got reason to avoid, but also the stock-in-trade um, uh, objections to externalism, what about Owen Wingrave, who doesn't want to join the army because he's not motivated by honour, surely he doesn't have a reason to go and join the army. Actually, what those two objections kind of have in common is that neither motivations, uh, internal motivations or external facts about the world get you anything like normativity, generate a fact about what you've got most reason to do. You're motivated that way, therefore you'll act that way. Um, doesn't show that you should act that way. Okay, next question was uh, down here in the second row. <coughs> Hi, I'm conscious um, as a vegetarian that um, my attempts to persuade meat eaters aren't very effective, don't have much traction. I wonder if we are able to artificially produce meat, will they suddenly have more traction and will that be because I've suddenly become uh, more persuasive or they've become more rational or it's just easier to follow the, the argument I'm making to accept the argument because it's less painful for them? Perhaps this is the weasel again. <laughs> I suppose what I want to say is only time will tell. You'd have to have those debates um, and you'd have to thrash that out in a, in a public forum. And, and the way you find out whether you've got most reason to be vegetarian or, or not um, is precisely by trying out your arguments and see if you can, seeing if you can persuade other people and not just seeing if you persuade them, but seeing if you can persuade them in a way that doesn't leave them with important questions that you don't seem to be able to answer, objections that you don't seem to uh, be able to answer. Um, so I suppose I'm relying quite heavily on this idea that there is such a social practice as deliberation. And um, the way we find out whether we're justified in our beliefs and in our actions is by taking part in that process. So I think I've got this great philosophical theory. The only way I find out whether the arguments are really good ones is by coming to an event like this and putting them forward and seeing if I get some you know, criticism that I, I'm not able to respond to. Not just people that are not persuaded by the view, but you know, something like, look, you, you've, you've contradicted yourself or aren't you vulnerable to this kind of objection? Um, so... Or, or take a scientist that's convinced that they've got um, you know, great results in the lab they're not really justified in believing that their theory is true until they've um, presented that evidence in a public forum, written in the scholarly journals, published it, and, and gone through a peer review process. 
Uh, it's no good just being justified in your own head. As, as, as I say, you justify to yourself or you may as well whistle it to yourself. It's not a, it's not a genuine process of justification that you're going through. I don't know if that helps on the vegetarianism, but... No. <laughs> okay, next question was at the far end of the, the first row here. Hi. Um, yeah, I just wonder if you're a little quick uh, dismissing coherentism, did you call it that? So, like, yeah, I suppose someone could say being coherent isn't sufficient for being rational. Maybe it's just a necessary condition, though. I mean... <laughs> You could just say if there was someone who had a completely coherent set of beliefs and also all of their beliefs were responsive to evidence in the right way and also all of their actions um, were properly expressive of those beliefs. Is that not like a par- paradigm of what we think of rational as? Like a, a quite an objective version of rationality? So, I don't know, I think that's just something that your account's very much open to, yeah. that kind of objection. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, if there's something going for the coherence view, logical coherence has got something to do with rationality, absolutely. The question is whether rationality just is logical coherence, whether that's all there is to it. Um, So I was objecting against the view which says coherence is sufficient for rationality, and that's that's why the dogmatist and so on, they're counterexamples to that view. But I'm on board with the idea that coherence is necessary for rationality, or at least, you know, to the extent that we can be completely coherent um, in our beliefs. And also I would say that if you take a social if you might say the dialectical approach to what rationality is rationality is about justifying your beliefs to other people and having conversations well then you can explain why coherence is an important part of rationality. So take the kinds of people that Socrates comes across or the kinds of people that come across Socrates in Platonic dialogues um, they're full of contradictions they can't, make, they can't consistently maintain their views uh, when Socrates uh, finds them. They can't present themselves as, as coming from a, a point of view, as a sort of rational voice which displays integrity. Um, Socrates unpicks them and, and they're embarrassed. Why are they embarrassed? Because they feel that somehow their, person, that their integrity of their person of their, as, a, as, a convers- as a voice in that conversation has somehow been unpicked or, or eroded, and they kind of got to you know go away and pick up the pieces and start back where they left off. So I think I'd, I'd go further and say that you know if we understand rationality as something like a social practice of speaking to one another, then we can actually explain why coherence is an important part of rationality. But I would say that coherence is not the be all and end all. Okay, the next question is that the gentleman with the hat towards the back on, on this side. Hi. Um, I have a rather bizarre thought experiment uh, to offer. See what you make of it. Let us imagine that we're 10,000 years ahead from now. And something that could plausibly be called humanity is still about. And these guys know an awful lot more about the way the universe works than we do. And it's universally agreed that the universe will soon come to an end. Except there is a mode of action available which will save the universe. However, it will result in the demise of humanity. Now, 
they need to decide what to do under these circumstances. It's okay, it's very bizarre, but it's designed to bring out certain facts, factors, as you can see. Now, it doesn't seem out of the question to, cons- to imagine rational considerations of the dilemma. That seems to be perfectly possible. It also doesn't seem out of the question to think that a possible rational conclusion that it is that it's better to save the universe than humanity. And yet, it would seem, at least on first thought, difficult to see how that could have any role with human interest. Yeah, thank you. I mean, a case is difficult to describe in a way. I wonder if it can be modified a little bit, because, of course, if you destroy the universe, you destroy humanity too. And if you destroy... So, so it's not like you've got either or. It's that you destroy humanity and the universe... Or you destroy, which is the humanity. humanity. Well, it seems like yeah. So I suppose the case is, it's is strange. To, try to keep to, to remove human interest, if you see right? Or not remove it because I, can I see that, yeah. That and I can imagine a conversation going, and I can imagine people in that conversation saying, "Look, you know, the universe has has value, and you know, we've got to keep it." But I'm trying to understand quite the situation of choice they're being faced with because it seems like they're on the one hand they're being up it's what's option one um destroy the universe uh the universe will be destroyed including humanity yes but the universe can be saved uh but the but humanity will will will, will go okay so on both options humanity is the end of humanity no uh, yes, sorry, yes, yes, yes. Both <laughs> options, no humanity. Yes. What about in one situation, humanity gets to live for another hundred years? Right, okay, yeah. So if you, can ima- if you can tweak the example so there really is a genuine choice between humanity and the universe, perhaps this is ad hoc, perhaps I'm just motivated by to try and save the view, but I mean, I, I tend to think that, yeah, if humanity can live to a, for a hundred years, to hell with somebody that says, let's preserve the universe. I think <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's well, a cheat. You can start constructing your own so we should we should move on in order to try and get okay. a couple more yeah, questions in. Thank you. So yeah. the, the question from down here in the front row, um, and then the gentleman in the in the pink shirt on the third row, and then that might, that's probably all we have time for. Um, is it your claim that uh, there's a single rationality across humanity? Um, basically, where I'm going is obviously. Reasons are they're based on normativity, normativity changes between times and, and cultures. Um, your account's problematic for a single dogmatist or ideologue, they'll appear irrational. But for entire cultures that are subscribed to you know certain dogmas, then there's nothing that one society could say to the other society about their rationality. We're just We've each got our own, and that, and that's the way it is. So, and just with the responding to reasons, is there a? Uh, how, everyone would claim to have reasons, but how substantive are the reasons? When do we say the reasons are good enough to cash out? Right. So on that last point, I, I suppose the responding to reasons view has to be not just responding to some reasons, but responding to what you've got most reason, doing what you've got most reason to do. All things considered. Um, so the first part, 
the first part of the question, I think, is, is that's the, the danger that any kind of account on the, on the lines that I'm presenting uh, risks, and that's what, what's what I tried to address in the last part of the talk. Um, I suppose most relevant is the example of Galileo and the Pope. Um, both have got, I wouldn't say different rationalities, but different conceptions of rationality. If anything, the way to use your appeal to society, is society a single entity? Do we have one society, which is humanity, or are there multiple societies? Right. Because I would probably, I'm less yeah. comfortable that there is a single rationality to be found within all of humanity. Yeah. Very briefly, I think I would say there are different conceptions of rationality and that we don't have to be relativists about these different conceptions of rationality. We can actually uh, choose between them, but the way to do that is by appeal to shared human interests. Okay, so one, like survival, um, for example. Should we do one last uh, quick question, which is the, the man in the, the third row in the pink shirt there? Yeah, hello. Um, yes, I was just rather confused by the fact that you say um, rationality defines us. Surely rationality is just a cognitive construct. Fine in itself, fine for sort of intellectual ping-pong, but um, it doesn't actually necessarily explain how the world is. I mean, um, for instance, I mean, in the coherence view, you said logical here, coherence is a way of approaching the world from a rational point of view. Well, since when is the world rational? I don't think so. And also the way we make decisions. I mean, there's the idea here that reasons are motivations. If that isn't an oxymoron, I don't know what is. Because, I mean, the fact, as this gentleman referred to in front of me earlier on, most of the evidence that exists nowadays shows that most of us don't have reasons for making decisions. We make the decision, then afterwards we try damn hard to, to give reasons as to why, because that's the sort of the grammar of intelligence that we're required to right. subscribe to. Yeah. But it, it's not how the world is. Yeah. And what you're constructing in terms of um, getting too hung up about rationality defining ourselves, you're making a hall of mirrors, <laughs> you know, where, where, where everything is just with regards to itself. But there's a lot more outside of that. Okay, so... I wouldn't want to say that the world is rational. So there's a sort of caricature or uh, interpretation of Hegel's philosophy. Hegel thought that, that the world that somehow obeyed some rational principle. And uh, history obeys this rational sort of way of, uh, way, of, way of being. I don't want to make any claim like that. I don't also want to, I don't either want to make a claim which says that um, human beings are rational all the time. Um, I suggested at the beginning that rationality is characteristic of human life or defining of human life. Um, in a sense, that's you know, if you if you subscribe to that view, then there's a further reason for for considering this question: why what is rationality? But as far as I'm concerned, I think you can take it or leave it. Um, but I mean, just to speak up for the view a little bit, I mean, it's hard to think of human beings. Um, interacting with one another unless they at least presented themselves as rational agents and defending themselves from a logical point of view or from publicly available <coughs> standpoints. Now, as you rightly point out, the fact is that um, 
this practice of rationality is often there are free riders on this practice that would like to um, confuse us with reasons and to justify any manner of actually you know quite irrational uh, behavior again this is the sort of thing that gives rationality a bad name so when I tell people that I'm working on the idea of epistem- uh, justification in epistemology they think that justification must be a matter of sort of justifying yourself after the event um, reasons are something that you kind of invent for yourself um, well um, certainly we do often uh, behave like that um, but nonetheless there is something called rationality which isn't just uh, how we do act uh, but it's how we ought to act um, so I suppose it's that distinction between descriptive and normative that certainly the world is not rational that there are facts about the world which are simply the way things are um, but there are at least some beings in the world, human beings, which are capable of assessing things in the light of reason. Okay, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Uh, my apologies if anyone had a question uh, and didn't get a chance to ask it. Uh, but let's thank Peter for an excellent talk.